0: Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode, which is going to be yet another awesome roundtable discussion or debate, if you will, with two great minds in the fitness industry after last year's super well received bulking debate. This time we are going to address the question of carbs and just how important carbs are for building muscle. And also how viable ketogenic diets potentially are for accommodating training for building muscle. On the panel, we have Dr. Mike Isratel and Menno Henselmans. Two guys that I wanted to recruit for this discussion for a long time. So I really hope that you will enjoy this discussion. And with that, let's get into it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you're feeling a tectonic shift, then it's not without any reason. It's because we have two gentlemen whose aggregate IQs are probably approaching 320. Dr. Mike Isratel and Manuel Henselmans, and I'm also here with my IQ of about 80, so we definitely have some really (laughs) high-level discussion ahead of us, and we are going to be discussing carbohydrate intake and the utility of ketogenic diets when it comes to muscle building. So first of all, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time, and let's not waste any more time. Uh, Dr. Isratel, I'm addressing the first question to you. So if someone wants to put on as much muscle as possible and is interested in maximizing muscle hypertrophy and already has as his calories and protein intake set, then what do you think is the significance of the ratio of carbohydrates and fats in his or her diet for that goal?
1: Um, you know, I think um, as long as you set protein and calories, you actually have done quite a bit to get your furthest that you could. And uh, the entire issue of carbs versus fats is relatively minor. And then uh, I think there's like a two tiered structure that emerges. One major hurdle you have to get over is getting enough carbohydrate to support the needed energy expenditure functions and recovery functions of the combination of your uh, basal metabolism, your daily tasks, and your uh, training demands. And that number is really highly dependent on the extent to which you are uh, active through the day and uh, pretty dependent on how much training you actually do. So if somebody weight trains four times per week, um, that's the extent of their physical activity that is uh, planned. Then the amount of carbohydrate they will need is gonna be relatively minor. Um, I think you can see pretty close to really, really good results with as little as a, a gram um, of carbohydrate uh, you know, per kilo of body weight per day, uh, maybe two grams, uh, and then after that, you don't have a huge increase in results. Um, If somebody trains twice a day, uh, sport-specific training, tons of volume for hypertrophy or or what have you, somebody like a CrossFitter, for example, then a considerable advantage is seen with higher carbohydrate intakes, scale to performance, 4 grams per uh, kilo per day of carbohydrate, sometimes higher. And then – so that takes care of most of the advantages of carbohydrates. And then there are some hypothetical smaller advantages if you go even higher than that and lower than fats. That comes at considerable trade-offs, But – Um, Some of these advantages uh, are based on the special qualities of carbohydrates that are not seen with fats. For example, the ability to mediate insulin secretion, especially area under the curve for long periods of time. So if you have a high carbohydrate environment as opposed to a high fat environment, you could have a high degree of insulin mediated uh, anabolism, uh, which includes uh, anti-catabolism as a primary source of that. You have insulin-mediated recovery. Insulin is very good at stimulating recovery, especially when paired with carbohydrates. So it's something you don't just see from uh, insulin itself, but insulin paired with carbs. Uh, Higher stores of glycogen, you see glycogen-mediated recovery. It's been shown that when you have high glycogen stores chronically that you have actually higher anabolism, probably due to direct signaling. So if you have really, really high glycogen stores as opposed to just adequate ones, there's probably a small advantage there. Um, And then, of course, when you have a high degree of carbohydrates, you have a high anti-catabolism directly because they're alternative to amino acids. So uh, carbs are actually a very preferred fuel source in in the presence of high carbohydrates. Chances of uh, amino acid catabolism, muscle catabolism is lower. You see lower cortisol levels, uh, lower stress hormone levels with high carbohydrate, which is very good. Um, Generally speaking, carbohydrates reduce fatigue well, um, and they promote uh, parasympathetic response pretty well. fats probably do not. There's very small differences. And I would say that calorie for calorie carbohydrates are considerably more filling than fats, especially if you focus on certain kinds of carbohydrates. This is actually something Mano brought up earlier with his protein article, which I thought was a really great point. Um, I don't think there's actually any more filling foods than vegetables uh, that are voluminous and fruits um, in that order. Or vegetables being more filling and then fruits after that. And then whole grains are uh, sort of a uh, really far third place. But I think every other kind of uh, fat is way way further so um you know if you're looking to diet hypocalorically that's a very good argument for consuming plenty of carbohydrates um although i understand there are some unique uh, potential uh, lower uh, lower appetite situations with a ketogenic approach um we could sort of uh, talk about that down the line so i think that um the argument that for a no carbohydrate diet excludes every single one of those benefits and uh, i would say in many cases is not a good idea although in some i think it's a fine idea and the most we could say about it is a fine idea um, i think that consuming adequate carbohydrates to meet needs is, is probably very good and then the path from adequate to optimal with all of these things that i just listed is a uh, quite a bit more tenuous i wouldn't put a whole lot of money on it but i think it's, it's reasonably likely that there's some advantage there i'll hold that advantage It's small. So if somebody said, hey, I wanted to, how much carbohydrate versus fat should I eat if I want maximum results? My first answer would be, you know, I would um, just get enough carbohydrate to meet those basic needs. And I would experiment with uh, higher levels of carbs and lower levels of fats, so long as you're consuming enough fats, you know, something like uh, 0.6 grams of fat per kilo per day. And then uh, sort of toggle those boundaries to see how you respond. So that would be my initial response to that.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that, Mike. And with that, I'm turning to you, Mano. So my question would be the same. So if someone is interested in building the most of muscle possible, but is not engaging in any kind of concurrent training, such as soccer or jitsu or anything like that, then if protein and calories are set already, then what is the implication of carb and fat intake for achieving that goal? Yeah,
2: sure. I um... Well, funny enough, I think most people will uh, go into this podcast that know Mike and me the idea that uh, I'm more the fat proponent and Mike's more the carb proponent. But um, if I hear uh, Mike's talk, then uh, uh, in, in one sense, I'd actually be more uh, pro-carb in the sense that um, I, I'm, if I'm vehemently against any diet, it would probably be a zero-carb diet, um, maybe even more so than a zero-fat uh, diet, um, at least in the short term, because I think zero-carb zero is, is not good, maybe not even that detrimental for performance. But definitely, uh, health and um, health wise, it, it, it's terrible from what I've seen. Some people do really well, I think, in my experience, mostly people that have uh, horrible carbohydrate tolerance and uh, often also FODMAP intolerances, which make them uh, very bloated, uh, get digestive symptoms, uh, sometimes problems with uh, appetite uh, when they consume carbohydrates. And uh, instead of learning to avoid um, those foods they're intolerant to and finding out which foods they are tolerant to, because almost everyone has foods they, they do. Uh, They can eat even carbs, even most carb-intolerant individuals. Um, I think it's more of um, a shotgun approach that tackles these issues with sort of a carnivore diet, but uh, health uh, markers in terms of blood work, what I've seen uh, go down the drain quite fast for many individuals. So uh, I I definitely wouldn't recommend zero carb for almost anyone. And even with a ketogenic diet, I've seen reasonably consistent benefits of uh, at least a targeted ketogenic diet approach which means you allocate more carbohydrates pre and post-workout, which in my experience also allows for a higher net carbohydrate intake to be consumed. Generally, uh, sometimes up to 20 grams extra net carbohydrate per day, which is very significant if you're going down uh, to ketogenic levels. Uh, so you get the same level of ketosis while having a higher carbohydrate intake. And um, it's, it's not a major difference in performance, but uh, I have seen in uh, a lot of individuals, of course, you know, placebo is hard to exclude in client data, but uh, repetition increases. Know, one to two reps extra per set especially in the later sets and especially if you do more like a, a bro type workout where you do a lot of volume for one muscle group i think carbohydrates are actually more important uh, if you do that because you have a lot of volume and what a lot of people don't realize is that it's not about the the total work you do per session but the total work you do per muscle because glycogen is stored intramuscularly and it, it cannot be shifted like um uh, not, not like liver glycogen which is more flexible in that regard the glycogen that's in a muscle can only be used by that muscle. So it's because of different um, uh, enzymes that are used. So it's basically that glycogen that's there is, is only usable by that muscle. And if you exceed a certain volume, then basically you're going to uh, potentially exhaust glycogen stores. Now, based on the actual research data, you're almost never actually going to exhaust glycogen stores with strength training, uh, at least not concentric, eccentric contractions uh, in typical like free weight exercises uh, or even machines. So... Um, I don't think that's a major concern, but it might be the case that you get slight increases in performance when you're not bordering on low glycogen levels. Now, overall, beyond that point, where you go above like a targeted ketogenic diet, I think the carbohydrate intake for a pure strength training individual is not very relevant. I think uh, it, it's massively, massively overrated. If you look at the research, in which uh, we're actually doing a review on that, that is hopefully going to be uh, published uh, this year. And uh, our basic conclusion is that a lot of the proponents of uh, high carbohydrate intake, and it's, it's a lot of research papers as well, that uh, still argue for uh, higher carb intakes, they base their claims uh, largely on endurance training studies, on studies that are not isocaloric, which is a lot of them, and on studies where that are confounded by protein intake. So if you're actually looking at studies where you have, like you say, the same protein and total caloric intake, and you also have similar uh, nutrient timing, and you don't have a very silly uh, research protocol where a muscle is uh, completely uh, depleted of glycogen with lots of endurance training. And then right afterwards, you do a strength workout that also has jumping across it in it. Then uh, you're actually looking at very, very minor benefits of uh, additional carbohydrates, uh, especially because uh, it's neither the timing nor the total amount that's usually relevant because uh, with strength training, most uh, individuals will have at least 24 hours between workouts. And the total glycogen uh, depletion that they uh, can establish in a muscle is going to be 20% or so, uh, often not more than that. Even in bodybuilders, professional-level bodybuilders, they found glycogen depletion levels uh, in between like 15 and 24% when you do a typical like bro high volume bodybuilding workout. So in that sense, I definitely agree with Mike. That's uh, not a major concern for most individuals. Uh, I would add, though, if you start doing very glycolytic activity on top of that, like high-intensity interval training, uh, potentially also like very high repetition work, maybe things like Widowmaker squads uh, that are sort of more on the edge, CrossFit would be something that's very uh, much of a borderline situation, I'd say. Then uh, carbohydrate requirements uh, skyrocket, actually. If you're looking at the glycogen expenditure or the glycogen depletion that you establish with one uh, all-out sprint on a bicycle ergometer, for example, uh, some research has found that just two sprints can result in 44% glycogen depletion because it's very, very high work rate. It's very very uh, glycolytic so glycogen is the primary uh, substrate and it's concentric only which has a much much higher rate of work than dynamic contractions so then you're looking at a very very different ballpark so as soon as you go into the like team sports athletes uh crossfit's a bit borderline but as soon as you go into those kind of realms then carbohydrate uh, requirements increase quite dramatically
0: Awesome. Menno, I would like to turn to you again just for a second to kind of set the tone for the upcoming discussion and also to give the listeners what they came for. So again, if we take the average individual who is going to listen to this podcast, who is not engaging any kind of significant amount of cardio type training, doesn't do a lot of high intensity interval type stuff but is living a fairly sedentary lifestyle is going to the gym anywhere between three to seven times a week and is engaging in some pretty traditional hypertrophy type training with a moderately high amount of training volume Do you think that this person, if they employ a ketogenic diet or a targeted ketogenic diet, but we are still talking about carbohydrate intakes of under 100 grams, do you think that this person could build the same amount of muscle as he was to do so if he was to eat a pretty high carb diet or at least a moderately high carb diet?
2: Yes, I do. If you have a properly set up ketogenic, targeted ketogenic diet, I think uh, most individuals that do pure traditional strength training will get the same results. And this is also what most research studies uh, the moment indicates uh, discounting uh, one very small study in untrained individuals that found a benefit of ketogenic diets for body composition, and of course, the Jake Wilson study that I'm also discounting for uh, suspected data frauding. Uh, then, most of the literature is uh, very indicative of uh, equivocal uh, results for the ketogenic and non ketogenic groups. So, I think. Uh, in that sense, definitely yes. The so ketogenic diet is absolutely vi- viable, and most concerns are not really related to body composition or performance directly at that point, but more uh, appetite, uh, well-being, uh, digestive issues. Uh, that I think most people take those kind of things that may differ. For example, some very carb intolerant, they feel better on a ketogenic diet. They have better mental clarity, and then they think they perform better in ketosis. Well, I think very very few people actually perform better in ketosis. It's at best the same as with higher carbohydrate intake. And on the other hand, you also have individuals. That respond really poorly to ketosis, and they may not feel like they could get the same results. And for that reason, they may also not get the same results because they just feel so lethargic on a ketogenic diet that they cannot give the same level of effort. And then, because of that mental reason, basically for psychological reasons, you do not get the same work output and therefore not the same results. But purely physiologically speaking, yes, I think uh, most individuals will not need any more carbohydrates uh, than a targeted ketogenic diet approach.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that Menno. And uh, Mike, I'm going to drop the mic back to you and ask you what you think is the utility of a ketogenic diet for someone who is interested in building the most amount of muscle possible.
1: Um, yeah, sorry for my voice. Um, that's actually a very good way to phrase it. Uh, what I think of the utility of a ketogenic diet and muscle building, let's just clear up something really quick. I think that um, Menno is uh, properly often referring to strength training literature. There's a little bit different than um, hypertrophy. Even in many of the studies, when they measure hypertrophy as an outcome, because you know they got the tools, a lot of times the protocols are very strength training oriented, and they're measuring hypertrophy as uh, they'll call it in studies sometimes resistance training. In reality, you know, not, not so many people do what would be called resistance training. Most people either are trying to get big, trying to get strong, or sometimes both. Um, so I think you know, what do I think about uh, ketogenic diet with strength training? I think if it doesn't affect your energy levels a ton, then it's probably fine. Um, is it uh, better to consume some more carbohydrates? I'd say by a very small amount, probably still. I think the degree to which it is better to consume more carbohydrates goes up substantially if you go from strength training to hypertrophy training. Uh, Both the sort of theoretical physiological variables line up better, and uh, you'll just probably have just realistically more real-world energy. Um, Almost everyone that's ever gotten meaningfully big, both drug-free and with drugs, has done it with a higher carbohydrate approach. Uh, Maybe not. Crazy at carbs, but certainly the the idea that you can get jacked by being keto all the time um has maybe like a ninety nine to one reference point in people who are actually jacked, which is not to say that maybe maybe uh maybe some people have overvalued carbohydrates for a variety of reasons and uh it, we would be better off or if people could get the same result with keto that is potentially true uh, in my estimation <clears throat> likely to be true but my big question, and I think uh Men could probably answer some of this is you know if uh, we can demonstrate that things can get uh, pretty much as good with keto uh, potentially with strength training um, and of course maybe less so with hypertrophy and not so with anything more than that uh, that's not much of an argument for keto you know um, like hey this won't screw you up as bad uh, or this won't screw you up as bad as you thought or this won't really screw you up at all Is not really an argument for something like you don't sell cars by saying this car doesn't suck you sell it by saying it has advantages, and I, I do understand that keto has some advantages. What I will say is, is in my reading of the literature and, and work with people and stuff like that, I think keto's advantages um, is by no means clear. They occur for everyone in the population. Uh, they're not dependable. So, for example, higher protein intakes are dependable in the sense that, sure, the average human being, they help. Um, you know, calories are universal insofar as. They literally just make everyone better like you know if, if you're hypercaloric you will gain weight it doesn't matter who you are um like you know going keto uh, particularly in low carb in general is one of those things that you know it does have some unique advantages like uh, it seems to um have some psychological advantage for some people uh, i would say perceptual psychological advantages which are not to be discounted but that's very different from something like uh, you know a mental performance measured by chronometry or iq um, where I don't think uh, going keto actually has any advantages. Um, keto also has some advantages in appetite control, um, particularly a reduction in appetite on a, high, a hypercaloric diet. I will say that that is really hi- highly juxtaposed, it must be very intelligently considered to keto's proclivity to eliminate an entire food group or nearly eliminate an entire food group, which for many individuals just makes them binge and, and cheat. Um, or certainly enhances the probability of that behavior. So I think if someone likes to do keto, if they have experimented with lower carbohydrates, that I think, um, and, and the, the experiment has been successful and sustainable, or at least for the time that they are intending on doing it sustainable, I think that's a very a fine way to go for strength training. So if someone is, a, let's say, a power lifter and does mostly sets of oh, one to five reps, and that doesn't train with a huge amount of volume, um, and they're you know they've been they've been smashing carbs. You know in this effort to get everything out of uh, they can out of their training and they're like you know i hate carbs i'm tired of this shit. i just poop all the time uh, you know i'm trying to do a lower carb diet but what i would say to them is you know i would experiment with cutting carbohydrates to some degree and seeing if performance and strength suffer and of course of course concomitantly replacing that with uh, either protein or fat intake because a lot of the people who say oh you know keto didn't work for me it was because you only ever ran it hypocalorically if you run eucaloric keto eucaloric lower carbohydrates uh, it actually feels quite a bit different than hypocaloric. a lot of a lot of things people um, that will say uh, low carbs are doing it's really just something low calories are doing I mean, you you have high carb low fat and low calorie all of a sudden you feel like just as low energy as you did on keto so um i would say you know my instruction for them would be cut your carbohydrates and see what happens and if they cut their carbohydrates and they feel fine and training's going well I, i'm not going to be like you know the stupid you're an idiot uh, and they would say, hey, listen, you know, what if I cut them more? Obviously, say, cut them more, right? And, and you get to a point where after you cut carbohydrates significantly enough, you may suffer um, either uh, probably unlikely to suffer performance loss in strength training, which you'll suffer is uh, so, so slower rates of gain, which can be hard to tell. But if you're a very good uh, trainee and you keep a lot of data on yourself, you can say, oh, look, you know, things are just not moving the same way they used to. Um, and if that is the case, then you say, OK, well, this is sort of my bottom end uh, of carbohydrates. And I would, I would say everyone uh, that is uh, sort of a, a person who is really heavily invested in their fitness and especially somebody who's trying to become an authority for others has to experiment with keto at least once, probably more than once. because it's, it's difficult to critique something unless you've tried it before. Probably tried it quite a bit. And then, so I would say it's a good idea to try keto and see how your training is affected. And you may be very surprised that it is affected not so poorly, but it is affected to a high degree. Then I would say that, you know, there is, there is not much of a counterpoint to if someone's like, look, you know, I'm, I'm doing keto and it's been like two months and my training really sucks. What do I do? You know, I still want to do keto. And my question really would be why? Why do you want to do keto? And they don't have a good answer. They could have a good answer. They could have appetite suppression effects, so on and so forth. But there's just not that many good answers. So what I would say is keto is not the super magical thing that we should all be trying to do. Um, but if if it works for you and it makes sense, that's totally fine. So long as your performance is maintained, and you'll find that out the trial and error better than anything matter. and I can tell you on here. But um, you know, if it if it doesn't work out and it looks like keto and it, it even sort of adapt to keto where you have some carbs pre- and post workout. Um, If that just consistently does not work for you stop doing it because there's probably not this gigantic sort of over the rainbow advantage for keto
0: right Uh, mike just uh why not turn back to you for one more second you mentioned a couple of interesting points about adherence and the lifestyle implications of doing a keto diet but to stay on the realms of physiology you mentioned that pretty much anybody who has gotten big and jacked has done so with at least a moderately high carb diet Why do you think that is the case? Is it because of glycogen or insulin? Or what would be your thought process there?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, I think both glycogen and insulin uh, and uh, all those other things I said earlier, you know, um, like uh, insulin-mediated anabolism, which is probably a small effect in in most cases, but um, can add up over time. Uh, Insulin anti-catabolism, glycogen-mediated recovery, glycogen-mediated anabolism, um, fatigue reduction, uh, via cortisol reduction, et cetera. Uh, and so on and line. So I, you know, I think, um, it's one of those things where if you, you know, nobody really ever argues against injectable insulin being an unbelievably powerful anabolic. Um, and, uh, you know, it's actually literally impossible to inject insulin without concomitantly raising your carbohydrate significantly. And if you go from going no carb or very little carb, all the way up to what would be considered high-carb for a natural athlete because we don't you know, want to re- sort of restrain this conversation to naturals, um, and that is a significant area under the curve difference in insulin exposure and in carbohydrate exposure. So there, for hypertrophy over long terms, months and months and months, uh, I would bet you would see a benefit. benefit's not going to be night and day, um, but it's going to be significant and that adds up over time, over time, over time, over time. Um, Is it going to be something that that comes up in a month or two? Probably not. Although the detection of muscle growth over a month or two, it has itself uh, really major problems. So I think that, that, yes, insulin plus carbohydrates, plus carbohydrate exposure, plus glycogen, all three of those together, uh, end up being a very positive environment for anabolism. Um, And I think that's uh, probably a good thing. And and so long as you don't dip so low in fats that you hurt other parts of that process, particularly sex hormones, I think that uh, makes a lot of sense.
0: Excellent. So, Menno, turning back to you, I wonder if you could address Mike's points about insulin being a mediator of anabolism in the long term, and then also the role of glycogen for hypertrophy training and how that changes depending on how many carbs you have in your diet in general. And then perhaps you could also touch on Mike's critiques for strength training studies not necessarily being appropriate when we want to determine how effective a diet is for potentiating hypertrophy and muscle growth. So, so yeah, go ahead.
2: I think uh, there's not much difference between hypertrophy and strength training. I think strength training, resistance training, hypertrophy training, for most people, they'll fall in the same ballpark when it comes to uh, carbohydrate requirements. You really have to go up to like crossfit level to before the, in the literature you start seeing borderline cases, like non, not significantly different, but looking at the absolute values, uh, it would suggest there's a difference. Um, I think... Insulin is probably not relevant for most people. Insulin has a very um, interesting relationship with uh, anabolism in that, within the physiological range, uh, it stimulates um, muscle protein synthesis and uh, decreases muscle protein breakdown up to a certain point, up to you cross a certain uh, threshold. And after that, there's no more effect. And as it turns out, that threshold is very, very low. You achieve it with just 20 grams of whey, and there are many studies that look at the effect of adding carbohydrates to protein. And they found no effect that you increase insulin, you increase um, glucose levels further, but there's no more um, decrease in protein breakdown, nor is there uh, increase in protein synthesis. Now, it seems that based on uh, a little research, and if you start injecting insulin and you go up to the uh, supraphysiological range, then uh, as Mike said, uh, it does appear that it is uh, stimulatory of muscle protein synthesis. Now, I don't have that much experience uh, with my clients of people uh, on gear that use insulin. I've, I know a few, though, that... Uh, basically reported uh, nada in terms of results. I'm also quite skeptical of it myself. But like I said, uh, I know a lot of people that do swear by it. Uh, it may seem uh, or it seems like there could be a positive interaction if you also throw growth hormone and a very, very high dosage of uh, androgenic anabolic steroids into the mix. And you, it's more of an interaction effect. Uh, whereas if you know someone's diabetic or someone just injects a whole lot of insulin without being on gear, I think uh, that will do uh, nothing positive for muscle growth. Uh, so I think it's it's more of an interaction effect there, and it's probably not relevant for the physiological range uh, because like I said, based on research you you cross that threshold for the maximum anabolic and anti catabolic effects of insulin very quickly as soon as you have um, adequate protein intake so yeah I think it is crucial to have protein with each meal including pre workout pro workout uh, post workout, and that pretty much makes uh, further carbohydrates at that point redundant i think in terms of um, any insulin mediated benefits as for um Glycogen, I think you won't, uh, you simply won't reach the level of um, uh, glycogen depletion that is actually uh, detrimental for performance if you have at least a proper targeted ketogenic diet. So, you're talking, um, there may only be detrimental effects when your carbohydrate intake probably goes below about 100 grams purely um, in terms of actual glycogen depletion. Because, like I said, you pretty much also always have 24 hours at least, even if you train each muscle group every single day, that's still 24 hours before you get glycogen. for glycogen resynthesis to occur and if you look at studies like pasco et al that found that 75 percent of glycogen is already resynthesized via the Cori cycle within six hours post-workout even while you're fasted it basically the body recycles the produced lactate and the traditional hypertrophy training uh, burns a lot more glycogen and that is accompanied with very high lactate uh production and that lactate can be effectively recycled recycled is a it's a bit of a misnomer here, but I think it uh, catches the process quite well. It's recycled back to glucose via the Cori cycle, and if you add to that uh, that typically you will have a very high intake of uh, glycerol, the backbone of um, triglycerides, with uh, high fat intake. That can also be used to uh, re-synthesize glycogen and produce glucose. Then, even without any uh, or significant without any significant contribution of uh, gluconeogenesis from amino acids, you already have enough time for the body to actually re-synthesize. The little glycogen uh, that was lost, especially if you also add in fat adaptation, potentially higher contribution of fatty acids during exercise, especially um, in between the workouts to re synthesize glycogen. I think you just won't get to the realm where you actually need additional carbohydrates for um, glycogen production and therefore performance. So I think it's really um, zero benefits you get. I do agree with Mike that that's not really a. a a promo for a ketogenic diet in that you basically what I'm saying is if someone for whatever reason wants to do a ketogenic diet or um, is curious to try it. And I also agree with Mike that it's something that uh, everyone should definitely try to see how you respond to it. Then I'd say, I think it's viable for at least most individuals barring obscene training volumes may, may definitely not be viable for people on gear. And I think that is probably the reason why most people don't, um, why well, we don't see many Jack people uh, that have, done ketogenic dieting. I will note though that there are quite a few if you actually look at the, the low carb community. Uh Louis being a, a primary one who has literally built his entire physique in ketosis. Like I'm talking literally he's been in ketosis for like 10, 20 years or something. And he, he built his entire physique and he looks great. He's uh I think his his FalterMaster next is higher than mine. Um so there are definitely those individuals. Most people just don't do it. And I think also you don't really see it because There is a very small minority of people who actually love ketosis so much they just do ketosis for life. But there is a much more significant, still a minority, but a more significant minority of people that react well enough to ketogenic diet to experiment with it and occasionally do it when it suits their lifestyle, the available food choices, uh, and just the the time. So then, for example, for the appetite-suppressive benefits that uh, the ADA responds very well to, so they use a ketogenic dieting when cutting. Now, I think... That is pretty much the only scenario when most people want to use a ketogenic diet. And I think there is a very clear limit, a very practical clear limit, in terms of when you want to stop using a ketogenic diet. And that is when you get to a energy intake where when you're still in ketosis, so your net carbohydrate intake is very restricted. Protein is also restricted. Many people don't realize this, but protein will also kick you out of ketosis. And yes, there's a lot of talk about um, it being um, supply or demand-driven. Uh, the fact is, if you get enough protein in someone, they will go out of ketosis. Like, there seem to be some exceptions in men, but for women, it's quite clear. You can just measure it uh, with a breath analyzer or uh, ketone blood measures. Just look at the millimotor levels of ketosis, add 100 gram protein to the diet. They will, you will see the levels drop. So you, you're restricted in carbs. You're restricted in protein. What happens at the point when your fat intake starts exceeding your protein intake? I'm talking in grams. So, you're say you're consuming 150 grams of protein, and your energy intake is so high that your fat intake has to go above 150 grams. At that point, you're just looking at a really sucky diet. Like, you really have to really hardcore a lot of ketosis to still want to do ketogenic diets at that point, because you're, then you are literally talking about drinking oil. Now, for most people, it's absurd. They talk, oh, I don't like ketosis. They're drinking oil. Those people just don't know how to do a ketogenic diet. You're still talking lots of veggies, um, meat, eggs. It's it's even very easy to still get to that point because if you have 150-gram protein, 150-gram fat, and a lot of people that are so brainwashed by how carb diets, and like they, they come to me, I see this all the time with coaching, oh, how do I get these fats in? I mean, I have to drink olive oil what whatnot. No, just replace your protein intake with high-fat sources. These people are consuming low-fat cottage cheese, and then they start drinking olive oil to get the fats back in. If you just consume full-fat cottage cheese, eggs you stop throwing away the yolks you start consuming full fat dairy full fat meat then boom you've got your fats done uh, extra taste no extra money very easy tasty way to get those fats in so uh to, until that point it's all fine and dandy but when you've exhausted carbohydrates and protein intakes and you still have to get more fat in, you start looking at like pure fat intakes and foods that have more fat than protein and you know you can get you can get some way if you really like pork and cheese but um that's also not the best for your health, probably, if you start relying on that exclusively as your protein and fat sources. So then, yeah, you start talking about drinking oil, and that just really sucks. So I think that's the reason you never see people or never you, you rarely see people that, that bulk in ketosis. It's not because it's not physiologically possible. It's just that practically it, it really sucks.
0: Yeah, although now that you mentioned that, my mind immediately went to peanut butter and almond butter, but uh, there might be some issues with the excessive protein content or. Uh... The carbs,
2: the carbs, the carbs are the problem. You can't, you can't eat nuts and peanut butter in a ketogenic diet, or at least you can, but it's a very limited amount. Uh, the best would actually be um, what are they called? The uh, macadamia nuts. Um, if, if you go truly low ketosis and you want to keep it healthy and satiating and you still want to get your fiber in, so then you're talking, you want to use pretty much all your net carbs for veggies, maybe strawberries. Fruits are already pretty much off the table usually. I mean, you're talking even the things like coffee and stuff can be problematic because of the carbs. Uh, many sauces are problematic. Uh, so nuts, nuts are not even on the table for most people. Um, you're really talking oils.
0: Okay. All right. So Dr. Mike, are you are you open to the potential possibility that the high carb preference in the professional bodybuilding world is... Influenced by compound and uh, anabolic steroid use, uh, what would you say to that?
1: Yeah, I'm you know I'm open to, to everything. Um, there's certain possibility that that is that that is the case. Um, I don't uh, I don't assess that possibility as very high because almost all drug free bodybuilders swear by carbohydrates. And as a matter of fact, if you're on enough gear, you can drop your carbohydrates considerably and seem to not care because the gear just powers through everything. Um, if you're drug free and you drop your carbs, and that can lead to really not great things, and uh, you pay very dearly if you're drug free and you do some things that your body's not a big fan of. Uh, there also doesn't seem to be a, a much higher prevalence of keto use in individuals that are drug free versus drug using individuals, and that when individuals that are drug free gain mass, they seem to do it predominantly you know, through a higher carbohydrate approach. It doesn't seem like any more so than individuals. Or running any other kind of compounds. Um, so that's definitely, uh, you know, is it possible that there's a, an exaggerating effect of excessive super high carbohydrate consumption uh, with uh, the combination particularly of growth hormone and, and insulin injectable? Yeah, absolutely. Um, does that mean that you don't get uh, pretty decent benefits of super high carbohydrate dieting uh, if you're drug free? No, I think you still get uh, quite a few benefits. Um, I will say that the the literature on uh, the sort of equivocal uh, or equivalent insulin secretion uh, between whey protein and um, uh, and car- uh, carbohydrate intake—I don't think there's a sufficient volume of literature there to to conclude very very strongly that that uh, that the insulin secretion is uh, you know the same, uh, especially over and over and over. So yeah, whey protein does a very good job of speeding insulin. The thing is, you don't eat whey protein all day long, and if you did, it would be a very interesting diet. However, if you, you can't eat considerable, you know, if you, you can eat 100 grams of carbs at each meal for the entire day. And uh, boy, oh boy, is that a lot of insulin area under the curve that you simply don't get from eating chicken and nuts and all this other stuff. Um, so I think there's still an insulin net benefit there. Uh, maybe in a, if, if you, in a post-workout window, you want some good insulin spike, whey protein is fine. I don't think you could have whey protein. Most people don't uh, every single hour of the day. Um, I think there's a limit there. I think there's a limit in the way that studies assess um, muscle growth. Uh, they usually do it through uh, muscle protein synthesis, which is measured acutely. I, I have yet to see very much good data on long-term assessment of muscle protein synthesis, particularly actual hypertrophy of higher carbohydrates uh, or very high carbohydrates to very low carbohydrates on a hypercaloric gaining plan. Um, I think there would be a difference there that would be small but meaningful. Um, and then uh, I think lastly, You know, fats are considerably more adipogenic when consumed in excess than carbohydrates. Um, Of course, both are adipogenic if the excess of calories is consumed. But um, I think that if you consume anything in excess, uh, you know, protein doesn't seem to be very adipogenic uh, at all, although, you know, does push other nutrients that you're consuming to be adipogenic just by displacing them. I think carbs are probably in second place and they're not so bad. But I think pretty much any fat you eat that's over your intake is going to go be stored as fat or very close to. So, you know, when people are eating, uh, you know, really high amounts of fat and very low carbs, the additional benefits to eating that sort of unbelievable amount of fat are small, if if not zero. The additional, at least theoretical benefits of eating a super amount of carbs is more insulin, uh, more topped out glycogen. By the way, there's a, a decent reason to believe that very high storage of glycogen uh, not just moderate but very high storage of glycogen and the avoidance of low states almost entirely provides an anabolic signal directly from glycogen storage mechanisms to muscle tissue so there's something to be said for keeping really really stocked up versus just avoiding the very lowest extremes so i think all those advantages of super high carbs um, over time uh, i think amount to something and don't come with a really huge adipogenic risk um, but I think that super high levels of fats do come with a huge adipogenic risk. Um, and, and also something to – and I don't, I don't think Venom and I are going to particularly argue about this. But Jesus Christ, when, when nuts are off the menu and nut butters are off the menu, uh, there had better be a good fucking reason, uh, including all fruits being off the menu. Um, there had better be a good fucking reason for you to be doing that shit. So uh, just sort of coming back to I think um, you know, one of the more pertinent points here is why? For the love of God, why keto? And, uh, you know, there are some good reasons, but they're, they're good reasons. Uh, they're not great reasons, and they're very individual reasons. So, uh, you know, sort of public service announcement. Uh, it's just uh, when you're that restricted with your diet, um, what is it that you are chasing? Uh, I, would, I would sort of introduce that it's not much.
0: All right, so so Mano, let's just transition quickly over to this point, which Mike just mentioned about the potential issues with fat overfeeding and that being potentially more body fat increase inducing compared to high carb overfeeding. And perhaps the high efficiency of fat being stored as body fat is problematic if you're doing that in the long term. So do you think that there is some possibility that the ratio of carbs to fat in an overfeeding type scenario, which we are talking about in the case of bulking is going to influence how much fat versus muscle someone is going to gain in the long term?
2: Uh, no, I don't think so, actually. That comes from uh, very short-term research, which has been replicated a few times, uh, including in metabolic ward research, um, with uh, even uh, protein intakes, that you get the same uh, result in the end, as, as long as you're not going zero fat, so as long as you're at least in like practical range of micronutrients. See, the body doesn't register what the surplus is. It just registers total intakes. So if you're consuming very high carbohydrate intakes and you measure fat storage in, say, one or two days, then, yeah, you get uh, immediate fat storage with a high-fat diet and not so much with a very high-carbohydrate diet because it first gets stored as glycogen. But when you continue the measurement period and you extend it to, say, 30 days, you get the same net fat storage in the end because you have the same energy balance because once glycogen stores are topped up, you're still going to uh, get fat storage. And if you um, exercise, you um, so you're so say you're in deficit, you have to burn that glycogen off again before you can start losing fat. So in deficit and surplus, the same holds, you get the same uh, body composition change in the end. Uh, note that there's also, it's not just protein synthesis, but also nitrogen balance research uh, and some limited, very limited, I'll have to admit, uh, research on uh, actual different proportions of carbohydrate and fat where they uh, mostly diet. But uh, there's one ancient one uh, that's not even available online, um, but you can still access it in, uh, in a book uh, where they actually looked at uh, strength development. And a, a rudimentary measure of body composition, just total body composition, I found no difference with uh, high carb and lower carb. Uh, so it's, it's not just uh, acute data. There is quite a lot to uh, to go on uh, to at least uh, estimate there's no difference, but I'll agree that there is a, a definite lack of research. Uh, one point I'd also touch on is that uh, the, the idea that all people that are, are jacked are consuming high carb diets uh, is, is very specific to the population you look at. I mean, bodybuilders are a very, very niche culture. They're very um, strong in their traditions. Uh, pretty much all of them are on gear. The natural bodybuilding community, truly national, body, uh, national bodybuilding community is, is tiny, absolutely tiny. Um, and they're still very traditional and they look up to the, the IFBB guys and the guys on gear. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to say if you, as a point of uh, a counterpoint would be the CrossFit culture where a lot of people get great physiques. Uh, also ones with the great physiques are often on gear. Uh, so that would that would support Mike's point that maybe it's not the gear that makes carbohydrate diets more effective. Uh, it might just be that most people do high carb diets, we just don't have a lot of people uh, that compete and do ketogenic diets. Uh, I, I think that it is quite safe to say that uh, the vast majority does high carb diets, so there's just not that much of a comparison to go by. Now, however, if we go back 50 years, then actually almost all natural bodybuilders and geared bodybuilders up to a point, up to about the golden age of Arnold, was about the turning point, uh, were actually consuming high fat diets. And they were like eggs, what, what builds muscle? They were eggs and uh, full-fat milk and uh, full-fat meat. Those were like the anabolic man foods of that time. And that only started shifting at some point, which did coincide with the, the rise of gear in bodybuilding. And it's only now that if you look at most people that are jacked, yeah, they're all on high-carb diets, but that wasn't the case before. Uh, so, yeah, it's I mean, it's all anecdotal and uh, historical. In the end, I think the research is uh, by far the strongest that we have to go by. Um, but um, like Mike said... It is limited, so it is fair to uh, look at um, other perspectives in this regard. Uh, but all in all, um, I think the case for um, for carbs is, is um, definitely as weak as it is for fats, because the case for fat is not, is not zero. There are uh, increases in anabolic hormone levels, especially in the long term. Uh, going very low in fat, especially when you go below about 20%, also tends to uh, majorly increase appetite, which you can combat if you go zero fat. But in the end, especially for a drug-free trainee that uh, just compounds the, the massive decreases in testosterone and growth hormone production that you'll experience then, especially in Contest Prep. Um, uh, there's also benefits in pro- of protein synthesis for certain fatty acids um, and cholesterol and omega-3 fatty acids. Um, and very, very scant research hunting at benefits of, uh, of some omega-6, uh, mostly funded by supplement uh, manufacturers. I'll have to add uh, arachidonic acid and um, those things. They may have some benefits, um, CLA is another fatty acid that's been proposed to have some benefits. So if you add it all up, cholesterol, omega-3s, all of these fatty acids that may have some effect, anabolic hormone levels, then you could build a case for uh, fat that you know there is some benefit as well. And I think in the end, when you going to equate this for energy balance, I think it will uh, pretty much cancel out. And the best approach is don't go super low on either. You want a bit of a balanced approach. And once you're, you're in that realm, I think the difference will be pretty trivial for most people.
0: Excellent. So guys, since we unfortunately have to wrap things up slowly because of time constraints, uh, Mike, do you have perhaps some question or comment to Menno on his points that he just made, such as fats are not necessarily being more lipogenic than carbohydrates in overfeeding type scenarios and also perhaps on the potential beneficial anabolic effect of certain fatty acids and that maybe we should not overlook those. So yeah, fire away.
1: I'd, I would like to point out that the um, <clears throat> the introduction of of anabolic agents er, occurred probably in, in mass in the 1960s, and that's uh, you know sort of shortly thereafter, high carbohydrate diets became in vogue. But the introduction of uh, injectable insulin did not occur until like, two generations later, um, probably more more in the 90s than anything. And uh, the introduction of growth hormone occurred in very small small ways in the 80s, and much bigger ways in the 90s. And by then, um, very high carbohydrates had been established for 20 years so I don't, think that that concordance occurs. I would also, uh, like to point out that shit people used to do back in the 1950s, uh, is an interesting argument. So it's potentially has some weight, but it, also people just weren't that Jack back then. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things that maybe that people use a high carbohydrate diet now and have for the last two generations because it is more effective and people used to use another diet, uh, because they didn't know any better. Um, but uh, but perhaps uh, there's something to be said for a counter argument there.
0: Excellent. Um, well, uh, gentlemen, I think that we uh, pretty much exhausted this. I mean, we absolutely didn't. We could go on for another hour. And once I'm Joe Rogan and I can fly people over for my three-hour podcast, you guys will be definitely there for my first episode to talk about this further. But this is as far as we get to go. And so, gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: Likewise. See you, guys. Thank you so much for having us, Emil.
0: Alright everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode, I'd just like to quickly mention where you can find these guys because we didn't have time for Redact at the end. So Mike can be found at RenaissancePeriodization.com, they have a lot of cool things, articles, videos and books for you to check out. Their recent book, The Renaissance Diet 2.0, just came out recently and I've had the pleasure of reading that myself highly recommended they also have a new app the rp diet app which might be out already and you might want to check that one out as well mike can also be found at, at @RPDMike on instagram and the menu can be found on menohanselmonds.com you can read all his articles there which are super well done you can also check out his coaching service if you're interested and his pt course which i believe is going to launch in march So if you want to learn all the fitness secrets of Menno, then you might want to sign up for that. I myself have completed his certification program in 2016 and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. So I hope you enjoy this and if you're still here, I'd really appreciate if you could drop a good rating for me on iTunes at thesustainableselfdevelopment.com. And if you're watching this on YouTube, then just subscribe and drop a like to support this channel. At any rate, thank you for hanging around up until now, and see you next time.